You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. Well, again, good morning, church. Uh, I just want to start here to encourage you guys to be praying for uh, Chris and the other team members who are still in East Asia. Uh, most of them are wrapping up the trip, uh, but Chris and a few others are, uh, still have a little bit longer to go. And so I just want to encourage you this week as you think about it to to continue to lift them up uh, to the Lord. And uh, in light of Chris being gone, you guys uh, get to hear me for the next three weeks. And so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess only time will tell. But uh, where we're going these next three weeks is we're going to look at the life of Samson. Now Samson is the last of the 12 judges, and he is undoubtedly the worst of them all. Now I'm not sure, but I, I can guess that some of you are starting to think, Wow, why, why in the world did these guys pick this book to preach on? Uh, well, the truth is, as pastors, we had never read it before, and so we're just as shocked as you guys are at all of the, the violence and all of the rest. Uh, just kidding. We picked this book, first of all, because it's the Word of God, and it, it says in 2 Timothy 3 that, that the Word of God is uh, God-breathed, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. And so we believe that the book of Judges has something to teach us. It has something it wants to reprove in us. It's, a, it's going to be used to train us in righteousness. But we also picked this book because it shows us and even paints in vivid detail what it looks like when a, when a culture or when a nation rejects God. And I know we've talked a lot about this and maybe you're getting tired of it, but um, I know some of you are concerned with the things going on in our nation and the things going on in our world. And maybe you've even had the thought that this is as bad as it has ever been. But I can assure you, and I can even show you, if, if we took a walk through history, that, that ever since the fall, humanity, when it has rejected God, when it has said, no, God, we, we know what you want for us, we, we know what you're saying to us, but we don't want that. We want to we go our own way. When nations have done that, when cultures have done that, it has always led to violence, to racism, to greed, to oppression of women, sexual morality and abuse, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And we see that in the book of Judges, which was written, you know, over a thousand years ago, and yet it's, 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 we're seeing it in our culture as well. And so this is not new. And so I know a lot of us would like to uh, ignore that. We would like to hide in our middle-class bubbles and pretend that such things don't exist, that they don't exist in our culture, and that they certainly don't exist in our own lives, but that's not true. However, other of us, we're on the other side of the spectrum. We're not tempted to uh, ignore them. Rather, we're tempted to obsess about them. We see the things going on around us, and we worry, and, and we begin to believe that God has forsaken us, or, or at least that he's lost control. And we just walk around saying things like, Lord, I, what are you doing? Don't you care about us? Don't you care about what's going on? And yet to both of those two temptations, I believe the book of Judges speaks to us. It shows us over and over again that God does care, that he is in control. And as we're going to see today, uh, that's true in the life of Samson. And I bring all that up because I, I've talked to a lot of you and, and some of you have, have told me that you really, have really enjoyed our study in Judges. Uh, others of you, not so much. Um, you're in that camp of why in the world did you pick this? And um, I, I also bring it up because I was personally wrestling with that this week. As I, as I began to dive into the life of Samson, it was just like, man, this is so depressing. This guy is really crummy. 
<laughs> you'll, you'll see. We'll get there. Um, he's, he's a bad dude. But um, as I was studying, I began to realize something. And so follow me down this train of thought here. Um, my wife, like many of you, we, we are always on the hunt for a cheap or even better a free date. And so one of the ones we've discovered through the years is this thing that takes place in German Village called Shakespeare in the Park. And that's what it is. It's a Shakespeare play that happens in a park. And, and so it's really cool. You get dressed up. You pack a little picnic. And again, it's a cheap, easy date. But I almost always, regardless of the play, uh, fall asleep. And uh, <laughs> to be honest, I seriously think I'm just not smart enough to understand Shakespearean English. And so uh, eventually I get tired of trying to figure out what's going on. And, and, you know, the other thing about it too, which is probably why it's free, is uh, there's not really any stage props. And so it literally is just actors having dialogue and and so if you're not catching the dialogue, you have no hope of knowing what the play's about. And, and so that's usually where I'm at. And so I'll just close my eyes and lay back and wake up to, you know, like, oh, it's over. All right, it's time to go home. And, and uh, you know, I'm happy because it was free and cheap. And my wife's happy because it was romantic. And I'm also happy because I got a nap. And uh, so it's a win for everyone. Um, but I say all of that to, to preface this. I'm, I'm by no means a Shakespeare expert. But while I was studying this week, I realized that that Shakespeare is a master at telling a story through the literature genre or the literature device called tragedy. You know, some examples of his famous tragedies would be Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth, and and many others. And I learned this week uh, that a tragedy story is typically made up of these five stages. Number one, there there are some happy times. Number two, but then uh, secondly, there's an introduction of a problem. Then, number three, the problem worsens to a crisis or a dilemma. And then, number four, the character is unable to prevent the problem from taking over. And then, finally, the problem results in some catastrophic grave ending, in which case the tragedy is culminated. And and the other thing I realized this week is that uh, in tragedies, the downfall is almost always the result of of a moral or character flaw in the, the main characters. And and, um, and so I don't know how you guys are wired. Maybe some of you hate tragedies. Perhaps others of you love them. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some of you who still have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. I'm, I'm with you. But um, the point is this, is that I realized this week that the story of Samson, and in really some ways the whole book of Judges, they are essentially a real-life tragedy. And with Samson in particular, I think there is value for us as we look at his life and as we see the mistakes that he made and we avoid them. As well, I think there's value for us as we observe all of the ways that God used this really imperfect man to accomplish his purposes. And so with that said, let's jump into the story. You can open your Bibles up to Judges chapter 13. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there should be a a pew Bible uh, in front of you and you can open up to page 213. And really today we are going to see the happy beginnings of what will ultimately become a tragedy. But before we begin, let me uh, pray and and ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Father, we, uh, I don't have to ask you to be with us. I know that you're actually here. Uh, Holy Spirit, we know that you're in this place and and we trust that you have some things you want to show us this morning through your word. Lord, we trust that you want to encourage our hearts uh, at the knowledge of, of who you are. And so I pray that you would do that. Would you illuminate your scriptures? Would you bless the, the teaching of your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, it says this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and he had no children. Okay, so what do we notice right from the start? Well, we're told for the seventh time in this book that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this will be the last time that we read that phrase in this book, but as Mike pointed out last week, as the book moves on and, and begins to conclude, we're going to hear a new phrase introduced, which is this, and, and then really is it, it's kind of the same idea, but it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so again, if we kind of contrast that with what we just read in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 13, we, we read that again, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight, or you could say, in the eyes of the Lord. And here we have it saying everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what we need to realize this is that one of the major themes throughout the book of Judges is this, that God determines what is good and what is evil. God determines what is right and what is wrong. And you see, the people of Israel, they, they, did, they forgot this. They got confused and, and they lived their lives based on what felt good, what felt right. And that kind of mentality led to all kinds of horrible things. And so I just, again, want to amen and even highlight what Mike shared last week. And that's this. You and I are going to have to determine if we're going to let God, if we're going to let the word of God, the Bible, determine what is right and what is wrong, or are we going to determine it ourselves? Are we going to determine based on what feels right, what seems right in our own eyes, or, or what our culture says is right? And that, my friends, is the choice that the people of God have always had to wrestle with from Adam and Eve in the garden having God's word questioned by the serpent to us today having God's word questioned by the culture and even by people within the church. Well, what else do we notice from these first two verses? Well, if you remember back to the other six times that we've seen this phrase about Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord, what is always followed is a statement about them being oppressed by a certain foreign nation for a certain amount of time. And both of those details are here as well. But there's something missing. This time we, we realize between verse 1 and verse 2 that, that, that something's missing, and that is this. This time, the Israelites don't cry out to God for help. And if you remember back to one of our first messages we gave in this series, we talked about how in the book of Judges, there is this cycle that keeps happening. And the cycle is this. Uh, Israel worships other gods. God allows them to be oppressed by a foreign nation. Israel cries out to God for help. And in response, God raises up a judge to deliver them. Well, this time's different. Israel doesn't even cry out. They break the cycle. And this is by far one of the scariest moments in Israel's history. And that is because they're on the verge of extinction, not by being killed off by an enemy, but rather by becoming so used to, so comfortable with their oppression, that they stop crying out. And they essentially have begun to assimilate into the Philistine culture. And so as we go through uh, the life of Samson the next couple of weeks, we're going to see just how bad it is. In fact, uh, in chapter 15, some fellow Israelites will actually hand uh, their judge, their deliverer, Samson, over to the Philistines. 
And so things are bad. Israel is in a dark place right now. But let's keep reading. Let's, let's go back to verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, so we're introduced to this guy named Manoah and to his wife. Uh, We find out that she is barren, that she's been unable to have a child. And yet one day, out of nowhere, the angel of the Lord appears to her and he tells her that she's going to have a son. And then he also humorously tells her in there not to drink any alcohol. Uh, You know, apparently they didn't have a Surgeon General warning on their bottles of wine and Miller Lite. And so the angel's like, hey, and by the way, you're pregnant. Don't don't drink any alcohol. Um, Just kidding. That is true. You shouldn't do that if you're pregnant. But uh, he tells her that specifically because um, this child is going to be set apart to God. And specifically, this child is going to be a Nazarite from the womb. And, and, and so she's told not to eat anything unclean and that no razor should touch his head. And we know about the regulations of the Nazarite vow because uh, they're spelled out for us in Numbers chapter 6. And the Nazarite vow consisted of really three regulations. Number one, don't drink any alcohol or grape juice or even eat grapes themselves. Number two, the, the second regulation is to not cut your hair. You see, the hair represented it was an outward symbol of the vow, much, much like our wedding bands are an outward visible symbol of our wedding vows. And then thirdly, they were not to go near a dead body because that would make them unclean. Now, normally someone would voluntarily perform or, or commit to a Nazarite vow for a certain period of time as a, as a way to dedicate themselves to God. But here we see the case is different in a number of regards. First off, this is divinely imposed rather than voluntary. Secondly, though, this vow takes effect at the moment of conception, so much so that his mom has to obey part of the vow as well. Thirdly, though, it's different because this vow is not temporary for a certain amount of time, but rather it's for Samson's entire life. But as we just read those uh, verse 2 to 5, there's one big thing missing. Or there's one big thing that we see, and that is the angel of the Lord tells Samson's mom his purpose. Or another way to say it would be uh, the angel told Samson's mom his mission in life, and that is that he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now that's interesting because, number one, the Israelites didn't even cry out for help. They don't even, as far as we know, want deliverance from the Philistines. But number two, it's interesting because it tells us that he's only going to begin to save them. In other words, this deliverance is going to be incomplete. In fact, we know from the rest of the Bible that the Philistines are going to continue to be a problem uh, for Israel until the time of King David and until he finally defeats them. Uh, Another thing we notice in this passage is that uh, God has already, in Israel's history, done some really special things with sons of barren women. From Isaac, who was born to an elderly mom named Sarah, to Jacob being born to his parents Isaac and Rebekah, who were struggling with infertility. And so there would have been a lot of expectation and a lot of hope at the promise 
of Samson being born. And, uh, you know, just as a side note here, I, I know that there are many of you in here who have struggled in the past and, and some who are currently struggling right now with getting pregnant or even staying pregnant. And I, I just want to say to you this morning that I believe that God has a special place in his heart for women and for couples who struggle with infertility. You know, we see him over and over again answer the prayers of barren women. We, we see him use the children of people who were barren in mighty ways throughout the Bible. And so, uh, if that's you, I just want to acknowledge that. I just want to say, I, I, I realize that when you read passages like that, maybe it, it causes you to have some pain. It, it reminds you of, of, of this struggle. And so, it's not lost on me. And I don't believe it's lost on the Lord. And, and I just want to encourage you this morning to continue to press into God and, and to continue to ask Him to help you. And I believe whether He chooses to allow you to have a child or not, he will meet you in that difficult place. And uh, I just felt led to say that. And, and uh, let's keep reading here. Verse 6. Then the woman came and she told her husband, A man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Okay, that's interesting there. Did you you pick up on anything in the retelling of, of her story? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, unlike Gideon, Manoah's wife doesn't test the angel to see whether or not he is in fact from the Lord. In fact, when she tells her husband, she seems unsure if it was an angel or a man. And, and that's because she tells her husband, a man of God came to me. And apparently that phrase, those words were a common phrase used to describe a prophet. But she does qualify it and she does mention like his appearance was awesome. And, and based on that, he, he seemed to look like an angel. But then when she uh, launches into what the angel told her about how she's going to have a son, that she's going to have to watch what she eats and drinks and and how he's going to be a Nazarite. She, she tells her husband all of those things, but then she stops. And she leaves off the most important detail of all. And that's Samson's purpose. His God-given mission, which was, again, to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so some have pointed out, if, if Manoah's wife failed to communicate to her husband what the angel told her just minutes after being told, what are the odds that as Samson himself grew up, that she uh, communicated to him his purpose. And as we dig into his life the next few weeks, we're going to see that most likely she did not. Uh, But let's keep reading. Verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again, to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and he went after his wife and he came to the man and he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is, this, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. 
She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or anything, or eat anything unclean. All that I have commanded her, let her observe. Okay, so Manoah here apparently didn't trust his wife, or, or perhaps he was just suspicious that she left some parts out in the story. And so he prays and he asks God to send an angel to, to come and to teach them how they are, what they're supposed to do with this kid who's dedicated to the Lord. And so God hears his prayer, and, but instead of sending the angel to Manoah, he sends the angel back to Manoah's wife. And so his wife, she runs off and she gets him and, and she tells Manoah, she says, look, the guy who appeared before is back. And so Manoah goes with her. But when he sees the guy, he says, are you the man who appeared to this woman? And so again, it's just further proof that he didn't trust his wife. And, you know, because it's like she just said, hey, the guy who appeared to me before is back. And then he sees him. He's like, are you the guy who appeared to this woman? And, and so clearly they had some marital issues going on there. But um, the angel just simply says, I am. So Manoah is like, okay, well, how is this kid supposed to live and what is his mission? But instead of answering the question, the angel looks, he says, look, I've already told your wife everything. Let her be careful to observe all that I told her. And, and commentators have pointed out, based on the way that that phrase is written, that the all that the angel says, is, is the way that it's communicated is to be, you know, re- remember the all that I have told you, it's emphasized there. And yet the angel only repeats to Manoah the parts that his wife had already told him. And so the angel too leaves off his purpose. And so already from the start, yes, this is a a tragedy. This is a story of hope. There's a lot of promise. God's doing something big. These are the happy times in the story. And yet we already see some problems and some issues beginning to come to the surface. So let's keep going here. Verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord... Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Sing, it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and he offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Okay, so Manoah wants to make dinner for the angel. And the angel's like, no, even if you detain me, I'm not going to eat your food. Rather, what you should be doing, Manoah, is offering a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and then the author of Judges gives us a little commentary. He says, for Manoah didn't know that he was the angel of the Lord. And then Manoah's like, well, well, what is your name? So that when what you have said comes true, we may honor you. And, and the angel's like, why do you ask my name, seeing that it's wonderful? And I, I just love that response. It's like, you know, no, I'm not answering your question. Why do you ask it? And, and literally what he's saying is, why do you ask my name? For it is beyond your understanding. And so with that, you know, angel shuts him down. Manoah shuts his mouth and he prepares a sacrifice. And it says, while the flames of the sacrifice were going up, the angel of the Lord disappeared. And, and apparently at the sight of that, you know, if you saw this guy that you thought was maybe a man, and then all of a sudden he was like, whoop, you know, up into the flames. Uh, it tells us that they hit the ground 
and most likely they were afraid. And, and it tells us also that they realized it was the angel of the Lord. And, and so verse 21, let's finish up here. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all of these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son, and she called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him at Maniah Dan between Zorah and Eschiel. Okay, so again, Manoah finally comes to understand that, that this guy, this man, was in fact not a man, but was the angel of the Lord. And at that he begins to freak out, and he, he thinks God's going to kill them. And then his wife, the, the apparently uh, voice of reason, the more spiritually discerning one, says, Look, you idiot, if God was going to kill us, why would he have accepted our offering? Or why would he have wasted his time telling us that we're going to have a son and all of these wonderful things? And, and so at that, Manoah must have been like, oh, oh, okay, honey, I guess you're right. That, that makes sense. Um, but then we're told that, that she names him and that she names him Samson. The interesting thing about his name is that you could read it as something positive. The name literally means sun-like or solar. But on the other hand, most commentators have suggested that, that most likely, given the nature of Israel and the amount of assimilation and compromise that was going on, that Samson was actually most likely named after the pagan sun god who was worshipped in a nearby town from where he was born. And in fact, you know, again, one commentator in talking about his name said, if not outrightly pagan, it is dangerously compromising. And then the chapter concludes with God blessing Samson and with his spirit beginning to stir him. And so with that, that's the end of chapter 13. It's, it's just an introduction to our tragedy. Again, it's the happy times of our story. And so in light of that, what are we to take away from all of this? Well, I'm sure that there are a lot of takeaways, and we've probably already hit on a few, but, but I just want to throw out a few more here. You know, as I was studying this week, the first big lesson, the first big truth that I saw from this story was this, that God keeps his promises. You see, God's commitment and his faithfulness to the promises and to the plan of redemption, they are not dependent upon us. In other words, God will keep his promises even when you and I are unfaithful. His promises are not dependent upon your character, but upon his And that, my friends, is really good news. You see, at this point in Israel's history, God had already promised uh, some pretty amazing things. In in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, I mean, you know, we had just blown it. In Genesis 3.15, God promises this. He says he's going to crush the head of Satan by someone born of a woman. Namely, he's, he's promising the Messiah. And then later on, he, he, we were told that, that uh, he, he says that he will bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham and through his descendants. And so even at this point in Israel's history, which is still relatively early on, God has made some unconditional covenants, some unconditional promises. And even when Israel was at their worst, when all hope was lost, when they were on the verge of extinction through assimilation... God breaks in, 
He breaks the silence by sending an angel to declare good news, to declare God's plan of deliverance, his plan of salvation. You know, even from this point on, Israel is going to continue to go through some ups and some downs. They're going to have periods of following hard after the Lord, of of living in peace and, and under his divine rule and authority. But they're also going to have long periods of rejecting him, of of worshiping other gods. And yet, over and over again, we see God's faithfulness to his covenants, his faithfulness to his promises. In fact, just a a little over a thousand years from when Samson was born, Israel will yet again be going through some dark ages. They will uh, yet again be oppressed and enslaved to a foreign nation. Uh, This time it will not be the Philistines, but it will be the Romans. Israel will have not heard from God in over 400 years. God will have been silent. And when it seemed like all hope was lost, that the promises of God had been forsaken, God's going to send another angel, perhaps even the same one that we read about today. But this time the angel's going to go to a young virgin, a young woman named Mary. And she's gonna, the angel's going to declare that she's going to bear a son and that she's going to call his name Jesus. And then he's going to deliver and save his people from their sins. And so again, all throughout the Bible, we see God continue to be faithful to his word, be faithful to his promises. And that should cause you and I to fall down in worship. Because how gracious, how wonderful is God that he keeps his promises even when you and I are unfaithful. Even when we turn our backs on him. Even when we don't cry out in repentance, he's faithful. You know, one of my uh, favorite books is, is uh, by this guy named A.W. Tozer. And, and uh, some of you know we've named our boys. We have four kids, and we named the boys after some uh, famous, that feels weird to say that, but famous Christians, some, uh, some missionaries. And I was really pulling for the name Tozer, but my wife shut that down and was like, no, I, I've let you have enough. We're not naming them Tozer. Um, so maybe a dog or a goat one day. I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll somehow work it in there. But um, I, I really enjoy him and his books. And he, I mean, he's dead now. But um, he wrote this book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And it's a really small book. It's maybe 100 pages. But it is so powerful. It's a, it's a whole book dedicated to describing and talking about the character of God. And on his chapter on faithfulness, Tozer writes this. He says, the faithfulness of God is a datum of sound theology, but to the believer, it becomes far more than that. It passes through the processes of the understanding, and it goes on to become nourishing food for the soul. In other words, Tozer is saying, God's faithfulness is not just some theoretical piece of knowledge that we have, but rather it's something that affects us deeply. It brings us comfort. It becomes nourishing food for our souls. In other words, that, that piece of information needs to move from your head to your heart. And for those who, that, who do that, who make that jump, it becomes nourishing food for their souls. And he goes on, he says, Upon God's faithfulness rest our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come and tozer goes on in that chapter to conclude by applying it this way he says every heart can make its own application of this truth 
and draw from it such conclusions as the truth suggests and its own needs bring into focus. The tempted, the anxious, the fearful, the discouraged may all find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He will ever be true to His pledged word. The hard-pressed sons of the covenant may be sure that He will never remove His loving kindness from them nor suffer His faithfulness to fail. See, this week as I was as, as I was reflecting on the faithfulness of God, I, I, I was again stirred as I remembered that, that this truth that, you know, God doesn't choose to be faithful. You know, he, it's not like me. You know, I, I, I didn't, uh, in other words, he doesn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, today, I, I know I've chosen to be faithful, but today I'm going to try being unfaithful and see what that looks like. You know, those people down on earth, they, most of them have rejected me. They have forsaken my, my word and my covenants. And so, you know what, son, today don't rise. I don't want you to rise today. God can't do that. You see, God, in the, in the same way that I didn't choose to be five foot seven with uh, blue eyes and, and um, I don't know what color my hair is, but whatever color my hair is, um, I didn't choose that. I just am. In the same way, God doesn't choose to be faithful. He just is. You know, I don't know what you have going on in your life right now. I don't, I don't know what difficulties you are facing this morning. But I know this, that our God is faithful. I know that our God keeps his promises. I know that even when things are at their worst, when hope is lost, he breaks in and he engages. And so I just trust that somebody needed to hear that this morning. That somebody needed to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. And even if you're not in that place right now, just wait. Because all of us go through seasons and periods of, of darkness, of, of periods where we're tempted to question the faithfulness of God. And, and we, you and I, we need to be reminded of this. You know, it's really cool. In the, in the book of Revelation, when, when it talks about Jesus Christ returning, it, it tells us that he's going to be riding a white horse. And I just love that. You know, you think about when he came the first time, he was riding humbly on a donkey. But when he comes the second time, he's going to be really cool. And he's going to, uh, not that he wasn't cool before, but he's going to be even, you know, it's going to be awesome, trust me. Um, and he's going to be riding on a white horse. And his, it tells us that his robes are going to be dipped in blood. It says that he's going to be having a sword coming out of his mouth. It tells us that he's going to have a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But in that description, it also tells us that he's going to be called faithful and true. And that's why the Bible, when it says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. You see, when, when God sent that angel a thousand years from Samson to promise the birth of the Messiah, that was... Proof to you and I that God keeps his promises. That was proof to you and I that, that for the rest of our lives, for the rest of eternity, God is faithful. So that's the first main lesson that we see from this chapter. The, the second main lesson that I saw this week is that there is the, the value and the importance of knowing your God-given purpose and mission and then passing that on to others. Again, as we have already pointed out, God clearly told Manoah's wife what her son's purpose was to be. And yet she failed to communicate that to her husband. And based on Samson's life, she almost certainly failed to communicate that to him as well. You know, this week as I was, <clears throat> excuse me, as I was preparing this message, I decided to work back 
and our church's library, uh, which some of you probably didn't even realize we have a church library. We, we do. It's, it's in the back. Um, you should check it out sometime. But um, I was back there because uh, I share an office with our worship director, and, and sometimes his practicing gets a little loud. And uh, <laughs> hi, buddy. I love you. I see you back there. Um, I, I just needed to, to, to get some time to concentrate. And, and while I was back there, I saw this one shelf, and it had 25 copies of the book Purpose Driven Life. And so apparently at some point, probably 12 years ago, our church did some sort of church-wide campaign through that book. And these must be the leftovers. And, and it's kind of funny back there. There's quite a few shelves of just like multiple copies of a book. And, and I guess that's where they go to die. But um, if you need a free book, I'll take you back there. There's, there's plenty of copies. But um, when I saw the book this week, I was reminded of how instrumental that book was in bringing me to Christ. You see... When I graduated high school, I was really struggling. I I wasn't following the Lord at all. I was wrapped up in myself. I was wrapped up in things that I thought would bring me joy, that would bring me pleasure, but in the end left me empty. And during that time, a buddy of mine uh, invited me to this group, and they were going to be going through the book, Purpose Driven Life. It had just come out. And and, uh, as he invited me to the group, he said this strange thing. He said, "Uh, I want you to come to this group, but, but don't come unless you're serious about God. And man, the Lord used that phrase to, to mess with me, to haunt me, if you will, for the, about the next week. Because I just kept thinking over and over again, don't come unless you're serious about God. Don't come unless you're serious about God. And, and I was, again, wrestling with that. And so I didn't go to the first meeting. And I saw him later, and he's like, hey, man, how, how come you didn't come to the group? And I really thought that you were going to. And, and I was like, well, you said don't come unless I'm serious about God. And, and frankly, I'm just not sure that I am. And he's like, no, I, that's not what I meant, man. What I, what I meant is, is that the group time itself was going to be a serious time, that it was going to be more than just a hangout. And so to this day, him and I debate whether or not he misspoke or I misheard, but it really doesn't matter because the Lord used what I heard to convict me, to bring about conviction. And so uh, I ended up going to the book study the next week, and I began to read the book, and And as I begin to read this book, uh, you might not realize this, but the opening line of the book is this. It's not about you. Which is the 19-year-old kid that was both offensive and also freeing. You see, I thought life was all about me. And and because I was struggling so much, you know, I was was just wrestling with those big questions of, of what am I going to do with my life? I was so sick of hearing that out of high school. Like, what are you going to do? You guys feel that? Like... Are you tired of people asking you if you're going to go to college? What are you going to do when you grow up? I, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. But um, I was just so struggling at that time. And I was struggling with the big questions of life. Is, and in other words, I was wondering, is this all that there is to life? Is getting drunk and chasing girls, is that it? Is that, is that the, the dream? And again, I, to be told that it was not about me was both offensive and freeing. But as I began to read this book and get involved with these Christians, I I began to know and understand what my purpose in life was. In fact, during that time, I was new to Facebook. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but Facebook used to be you had to be in college to be able to get on it. And I was really, like, protected. And and I wasn't in college. uh, But then they finally opened it up to the rest of us. And then, you know, all of our parents and our weird uncles got on there. And it's just been downhill ever since. But... uh, (laughs) It used to be you had to be in college, and, and so they finally opened it up, and I get on there, and um, 
under the About You section, I, they have an area, obviously, you know, where you can tell about yourself. And, and this one particular area, you can just write anything you want to describe yourself. And what I wrote 12 years ago, and is still on there today, is this. My purpose in life is to know Jesus Christ and to make him known. Now, that's not original to me. I'm sure I stole it from somebody. But as a 19-year-old kid who felt like he had no purpose, no mission in life, to finally come to a place where I realized, yes, I do in fact have a purpose, it was extremely powerful, and it completely changed the trajectory of my life. It so shaped my life then, and it continues to do so even now. That's why every morning I get up, I brush my teeth, and I, I, get, I grab a cup of coffee, and then almost immediately the next thing I do is I grab my Bible and I go out to our front porch and I begin to read the Word of God. And I don't do that because it's going to earn me extra credit with God. I I don't even do that because I'm a pastor. I do that because I want to know Jesus Christ. I do that because I want to know this God who is so faithful, who has so loved me. And so I just want to challenge you this morning. If you've never thought about your God-given purpose, Then maybe even sit down this afternoon with a Bible and a blank piece of paper and begin to write out what you think it is. You see, Samson had a God-given purpose, but it was never shared with him. His parents failed to communicate it to him. And, you know, just with that, my parents are here. I know that I grew up in a a Christian home, and I know that they shared this purpose with me, but I just didn't hear it. And so, uh, yes, parents, we do have an obligation. We have a responsibility to communicate it to our kids And yet you can't control the outcome of that. But because Samson's mom didn't, he, he, as a result, he lived a self-absorbed, purposeless life. And so let that be a warning to all of us. Again, we we can't control the outcomes, but but you and I need to make sure that we are communicating to our kids. And, And even if you're not married or if you're single, all of us need to be about the work of discipling others. And part of that discipleship process is communicating God's purpose and his mission for our lives. You know, I meet with some guys here at the church one-on-one, and, and one of my primary goals as we meet together is to help them see and understand the purpose of God in their lives. And, and I believe it's so critical for all of us to know it ourselves and to communicate it to others. And so let's end there for now. Next week, we'll continue to look at the life of Samson. We'll continue on in our tragedy. Uh, next week, we're going to start to see some of the problems, uh, some of the, the uh, moral flaws and characters Uh, moral flaw in his character. And and so I just want to encourage you to join us next week. But for now, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that even in the darkest of stories, even in the the darkest of times, there's truth communicated. There's there's, uh, your character you're revealing to us. Father, we're so grateful that you are a faithful God. We're so grateful that you... uh, that you, do not, you don't choose to be faithful, you just are. It's in the very nature. Just in the same way, you don't, you don't choose to love, you are love. And so, Lord, I pray that that truth would sink deep into our hearts this morning. God, for those who are struggling with believing that you're faithful, believing that you're good, I pray that your spirit would touch them. That this story of, of Israel's history, of, of, of them forsaking you, of them not repenting, and you still being faithful to your promises, Lord, would encourage their hearts. God, I pray that all of us would walk away this morning with, with knowing our God-given purpose, our, our God-given mission, Lord, and that it would fuel our everyday lives. 
Lord, that it would, it would be the thing that would, would influence our decisions. Lord, it would be the thing that would, that would uh, lead us throughout the day. And so, Spirit, would you help that in us? Lord, would you instill that in us this morning? And, Father, we, we now pray for this offering. And, Lord, I ask that it would be used to expand your kingdom in this city, Lord, that it would be used to expand your kingdom throughout the world. And, Lord, we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.